Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here's my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the movie Carol, adapted from Patricia Highsmith's novel The Price of Salt, by screenwriter Phyllis Nash and director Todd Haynes. Set in 1950s New York, it's a love story between Carol, a rich housewife played by Kate Blanchett, and Therese, a young shop girl and budding photographer played by Rooney Mara. So this movie is a very welcome Patreon request from listener Sarah, since Morgan is a Todd Haynes expert, and I love this movie to bits, so we are very ready. Yes. Thanks to everyone who requests episodes from us, but uh, thanks particularly to Sarah for this episode, obviously, um, but also because we're very excited to talk about this. This is our second Todd Haynes request episode after Velvet Goldmine earlier this year, and I enjoy this trend because I could talk about Todd <laughs> Another Haynes. Another major fave. <laughs> yep, for a long time. Uh, so I said at the end of last week's episode when we were sort of previewing this that I had seen this movie at the time and liked it fine but didn't love it. It's still not one of my favorite Todd Haynes movies, having watched it again, but I enjoyed it a lot more this time, and it was really interesting to watch sort of outside the rush of anticipation for a new Todd Haynes movie. He hadn't made a film in quite some time when this movie came out, so for people who are fans of his, it was a really big deal that this movie was happening. And um, I think it's very much in line with his earlier work in certain ways, but in certain ways is quite different. His earlier movies tend to be quite intertextual and almost academic in a way in that they make really sort of obvious stylistic references to lots of other stuff. And this movie definitely is referencing things, but in a more subtle way. And I think it's a more straightforward narrative in a lot of ways than his other films. And so I think when I first saw it, I was kind of expecting something that the movie just isn't doing. Yeah, it's like a really straightforward romantic drama. Yes. And which is not a problem with the movie, but I think that when I saw it, I just kind of was anticipating something that the movie wasn't, which was part of why I responded to it, not negatively, but just like, oh, okay. And so watching it this time, knowing what it was, I think I was able to appreciate it a lot more because I wasn't, I didn't have expectations that weren't going to be met. And it is just like incredibly beautiful and detailed. We're going to talk a lot about the period setting and it is one of the best uh, sort of fifties period movies I've, or television, you know, anything that I've ever seen. It is so sumptuous. Incredible. (laughs) I still, I think my main problem with this movie is that I just don't find Rini Mara compelling in it even slightly, which is an issue for a romance to not find one of the actors engaging. But um, we could talk about that more later. You love this movie a lot, so why don't you give your little spiel about it to our listeners? I'd actually forgotten that I went to the premiere of this film <laughs> in London, because it was like, I didn't have like a premiere experience, but our friend Sarah Dollard and I went to see this film at Lunch Film Festival and like, we're technically walked along the red carpet, but like, we're not on the red carpet. And my main memory, apart from absolutely adoring the film, is the fact that they had like chocolate in everyone's seats. And I was kind of imagining this as the sort of emotional panacea, kind of like when Professor Lupin and Harry Potter is like, have some chocolate to handle all of your tears. And I was like, oh, they're really expecting us to cry in this one, are they? <laughs> and I did. Um, and then when it came out for real, I made everyone go to see it with me for my birthday as a very grown-up birthday party. <laughs> 
But um, yeah, I, I absolutely adore this film. It's it's just very sort of like luxurious and sensual and very, very straightforward romance with no sort of edginess or commentary or anything. And like, because obviously like romance as a genre is usually sort of rom-coms or biopic type stuff. This is actually kind of a rarity. It's a type of film that was very popular in kind of the mid 20th century and has since died out. And this works really well without feeling pastiche Yes, well, the main difference between this and some of his other work, and specifically Far From Heaven, which came out 15-ish years before this movie, and shares a lot of thematic material with this film. If you haven't seen it or haven't seen either of these movies, I highly recommend seeing both of them. But if you have the time or inclination to double bill them, it would be a really, really interesting double bill. Far From Heaven stars uh, Julianne Moore as a housewife who sort of discovers that her husband, played by Dennis Quaid, is a gay man. And she, this sort of just turns into this drama. He winds up, I think, trying to do some sort of, like, therapy, in quotes, thing to, like, cure him. And then she, meanwhile, winds up having this romance with an African-American man in town. And it, is it's a really amazing movie um, that again it deals with some similar thematic issues to this film because there's this stuff about marriage and parenthood um, and sort of being a closeted person at this time period. But the main difference is that Far From Heaven is deliberately a pastiche of Douglas Sirk melodrama films from the mid 20th century. So it is playing on a couple of the Cirque movies in particular in terms of like the plot developments, but also the style is really heightened. So like the cinematography has these really, really bright colors, which Cirque did. And the acting is, the acting is great, but it is in this kind of like melodramatic style that if you, I mean, I haven't seen very much Cirque, but it's, it is in a certain mode that even if you aren't familiar with those older movies you watch it and you're like oh yes the 50s like it's really recognizable and I really love that movie and I think it's super interesting and it is also just compelling as a story but there's this other stuff going on whereas Carol is not a pastiche at all so it is dealing with some of those ideas but is doing it in a very straightforward sort of realism way that makes it more I mean the emotions in Far From Heaven are definitely sincere it's a very I found it a very moving and affecting film but it I think Carol is more it's meant to appeal to your emotions in a more direct way I would say than um Far From Heaven is and so it's sort of an interesting progression to watch them together because you sense that he's sort of stripping away some of the artifice from the earlier films once he gets to this one um, and just trying to tell this direct story, which as you say, is not something that gets made very much anymore at all. Like romantic dramas famously as of late, like don't do very well at the box office. And so they don't make them even romantic comedies don't get very made. They're having a little boom recently, but like romances in general just don't get made because Hollywood thinks the only people who go to the movies are teenage boys. So so it was like a big deal that this movie got made, essentially. Obviously, also the fact that it's a lesbian romance is highly unusual. Yes, there was a whole kind of deal about this film 
arguably getting shout out of the Oscars, but we'll kind of talk about that at the end of the episode. But um, yeah, like before we were recording, I was reading a few interviews with the cinematographer Edward Lachman, and that kind of ties into what you were saying about Douglas Sirk and sort of how this film's references are more subtle than the ones we see in Todd Haynes's other movies. Like, obviously, I am less of a Todd Haynes expert. I've seen Velvet Goldmine a million times, but I have not seen his other films, one of which is literally a biopic of Bob Dylan, so it's full of references to his life, obviously. But in this, um, although there are kind of some classic sort of 1940s, 50s romantic dramas that it bears some resemblance to, it's not so kind of flinging references out at you, except for with photographers, which is definitely not something I would have been aware of, because like most people, I am not well versed in the history of mid-20th century New York uh, photography, but... Once you kind of look up the photographer who influenced it, it's actually very clear in a very interesting way. So the cinematographer, Edward Lachman, two of the photographers he looked at were Saul Leiter and Vivian Meyer. Um, Saul Leiter, there's a Guardian kind of article on him that I'll link to in the show notes, but you see even one photo from him and you're like, wow, this could be a screenshot from Carol because he did a lot of kind of pictures which were taken through glass or glass with raindrops on it, which is a couple of the most memorable shots from this movie. You know, you see Rooney Mara's face through a car window and kind of the colour palette is very recognisable because this movie really leans into having a colour palette that you just don't see in contemporary movies at all. And then Vivian Meyer is basically a street photographer who was only discovered... I think it was shortly before she died. So she took photos like throughout her life in 20th century New York, but they weren't published. She just kept them herself. And then they were sort of exhibited in the 2000s kind of as found art, essentially. But they're amazing reference work for this movie. And kind of it meant that they knew precisely how all the costumes should look um, without it being one of these sort of really ostentatious costumey costume dramas that you get. But I think, yeah, with the with the photographs, as soon as you see those photos you immediately get an idea of kind of the DNA of what this film would look like because obviously Todd Haynes has very specific ideas about everything he is very much both a collaborator but also very specific which I like to see I like it when someone knows what they want but doesn't seem like a huge egomaniac because I know I've I've seen kind of panel interviews of him and stuff and he is very much one of those people who's sort of bringing in other people to the conversation and kind of talking about the collaborative work rather than being an egomaniac who's like I'm the auteur who had this perfect vision <laughs> yeah I've seen him do talks as well and obviously you never know with public no we do not know him at a personal level he <laughs> does genuinely seem just like a nice genius man which I appreciate I also saw a talk when I saw this at um the film society of Lincoln Center with Ed Lockman, the cinematographer, and it was really, really interesting to hear him talk about it because he talked about the photographers who they were referencing. I think they showed some photos on like the screen behind them. And you can really tell with Saul Leiter in particular where the the visual DNA of the film was coming from and all the scenes through panes of glass with like rain on them, etc., are really coming from that in a way that's really interesting. It's very obvious in the sense that Therese is literally a photographer. You know, which um, I've not read the, the Price of Salt, but in the original novel, she's um, she wants to be a set designer. But I think this decision to change that is a really good choice. It's not just like, oh, she likes to take photos and she takes photos of her lover, which is like a very sort of 
cliched idea to have in a movie like oh gonna just draw a portrait in the Titanic but it it is kind of illustrating how she is a quiet kind of observational person which isn't really the same as it being like oh here's this shy mousy girl who's brought out of her shell by an older lover who like introduces her to life which is kind of what this film feels like on a superficial level but I actually don't think it's like that because We do actually see that Therese has quite a rich life on her own. Like she has her own career aspirations from the start. She has quite a wide social circle um, of mostly young men, but she has this kind of, this definitely has a social circle of people who she goes to parties with. You know, she has a boyfriend who for obvious reasons doesn't last very long. And she has people who she kind of meets as her career progresses towards the end of the film. So it's not like she's this sort of naive person, except in the sense that she's never had this grand passion and this love story in her life. And the kind of quietness doesn't go away. You know, she's still a quiet person at the end of the film rather than it being about her being brought out of her shell. And you can kind of see that in all these shots where she's watching people through panes of glass or we're watching her and Carol through windows and doorways. And it kind of all all comes together with the photography. Yeah, I think the photography really works as a sort of character thing. And the movie starts with her... I mean, Carol appears very quickly, but she's not really a point of view character for the first almost half an hour of the movie. The first few minutes, the first scene of the film is a flash forward to the end of the story. So we kind of see their meeting after that. Yes, but the sort of main subplot of the film has to do with Carol and her husband and the custody fight over their daughter. But that really doesn't show up at the beginning of the movie. And so they really establish what Therese's life is in advance of that, which then gives you this sense of her, as you say, like having a life outside of this, which I think is really important for the dynamic of the film going forward. The framing device, uh, just sort of flashback thing that you mentioned, is taken from Brief Encounter, which was a British melodrama film that came out around the time that this movie takes place. And people wrote about that a lot at the time. It's not as obvious a reference as some of the stuff in Velvet Goldmine or I'm Not There or Far From Heaven. But Brief Encounter is a pretty famous movie for people who know that period of movies. It's a story about a man and a woman who are kind of in these unhappy marriages. Or maybe she's just married. Anyway, they wind up having an affair, although they don't quite consummate it, I think, because it's a movie from like 1945. So, you know, and obviously they can't get together at the end because, again, it's a movie from 1945. And so it's the sort of grand passion thing that can't work out. But there are definitely parallels to this story because of the affair element and sort of this like very sincere tone to the movie that's quite unlike the romantic comedies from that period which even if they do have emotionally sincere beats are obviously also very kind of screwbally and funny and very stylist yes brief encounter is not like that at all but one of the things that i noticed watching this again is that there's a scene where therese goes into a record shop to buy a record for carol for christmas and she goes into the shop and there's a sort of shot that looks back onto the street and there's a um, dog statue, which is one of the old record labels that was like this, the sign that you get on the LP, I think it was maybe RCA. But um, that whole sequence is very directly lifted from this melodrama that came out in 1941, I want to say, called um, Penny Serenade. 
And that starred uh, Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. And part of the reason they had the dog in there was that it looks like the dog that they had in the movie that they starred in together, The Awful Truth, which is the dog Asta from The Third Man, incidentally. (laughs) Ah, a star dog. Yes. Oh, it was the most famous dog in Hollywood. Better paid than many human actors. Um, And Penny Serenade is a movie that, like, no one has seen. No one has seen this fucking film. I watched it because uh, I really like The Awful Truth and they did another romantic comedy together called My Favorite Wife and then this was the third film that Cary Grant and Irene Dunn did together and like I could get it from the Oxford Library on DVD and I was like, sure, I will watch this one too. And it's a melodrama that sort of follows this husband and wife over the course of their relationship. I think it also has a framing device where you sort of start at the end, but It has a lot to do with parenthood. They wind up not being able to have a baby and they adopt a kid and there's all this stuff with custody hearings. And then like the child dies melodramatically at the end of the film in a way that is just like way too much. This is not the best movie that you will ever see. Although it's not terrible either. It depicts parenthood in a very kind of real way that most movies of that time that I have seen anyway do not. But it's not like it's a direct parallel for this film. But once I kind of thought about it, I was like, oh, I do see why he would reference that in this and it made me wonder how many other really subtle references to other obscure films of that time are in this movie in a less obvious way than oh yeah right there'll be stuff lurking in there (laughs) because again like penny serenade is a movie that you can watch on amazon or whatever because it has cary grant in it basically but that is not a film that is well known at all and that he has this reference to it in there that is definitely deliberate. And so, again, like, he's clearly pulling all of this stuff from these movies of the time, but synthesizing it in a way that is more indirect than the earlier films. And I think all of that is is really interesting. And you do get this sort of tonal sincerity that really harkens back to those melodramas of that period, which is not not my area of expertise. Like I haven't seen a lot of those kinds of films because that is not the kind of movie that has sort of permeated our culture today. Like obviously most people aren't watching a ton of movies from the 1930s and 1940s period. But if you are, you're probably watching something like His Girl Friday or Casablanca or The Maltese Falcon, which is like the noirs and the romantic comedies are like maybe a western if you like that kind of stuff whereas these sort of really intense like women's picture melodramas are just not the kind of thing that has survived in the way that like they're kind of in the cultural lexicon for us now but between this and far from heaven it's clear that this is something that he is really interested in and really values and so carol is interesting in that instead of doing the direct pastiche she's trying to update it a little bit for the modern audience while still kind of keeping that tone. And obviously it's about lesbians. So like, that is a huge, huge (laughs) shift. I mean, it kind of feels like analogous to the period when, you know, obviously everyone is wanting to watch love stories because everyone always, it's a very popular genre, but because like of the Hayes Code or whatever, kind of various levels of censorship, stories are kind of often having to be told through sort of layers of, metaphor <laughs> and like you can't show sex on screen and you can't necessarily tell a divorce story that is particularly reflective of true life and you know everything is sort of alluded to but not necessarily directly addressed and that's kind of the equivalent 
now is like having a story about the closet, which is what this film is about. Yes. And in Far From Heaven, what he does is again directly address the fact that Dennis Quaid is gay and that this is sort of messing up their marriage and deliberately has an interracial romance in that film, which was something that couldn't really be engaged with. And I mean, it couldn't be engaged with in the Hayes Co. period at all. Um, but there's still sort of some restrictions on things in that movie, it feels like to me. Whereas this film is just completely, again, straightforward and sincere and sort of shows everything. Obviously shows everything in the sense that there is like a quite explicit sex scene in it. But in general, like it just seems to have like the whole the whole emotional range of the relationship yeah. in it. And I mean, I was about to say, oh, it kind of feels like it came a couple of years too early. But I think possibly it was sort of the tipping point. Because then immediately after that, we then had Call Me By Your Name and The Favourite, which were both huge hits. And this has this has like a very dedicated audience, but it was not quote unquote a hit. I mean, I don't think it was ever going to be though. Because again, no. it has that level. <laughs> it's, it's so sincere. And despite being very modern in certain ways, it is fundamentally such an old fashioned movie. Whereas The Favourite is not it is so modern <laughs> and call me by your name is this sort of like youthful passionate yeah romance right but i still feel like in terms of queer content this felt a bit more like a tipping point even yeah. though it's not as sort of immediately i mean it's not inaccessible but like for the reasons morgan said it's not sort of like here's a fun music video or something like where you can have a really entertaining uh, sort of pressed her and so on. Although that's partly because, you know, Rooney Mara just wants to sit down with a quiet book. She's not really <laughs> someone who's going on the talk show circuit being like witty and effervescent. No. So, I mean, the acting in this film is interesting because you have sort of a range of styles mashed together, which is often something I really like. And I think sometimes a director will get actors who are very different from each other in the same movie and they play off of each other in, in an interesting way. I mean, I really like this combo because because it's like introducing Rooney Mara's character as the point of view character and sort of like not the audience insert, but it is, if it was a book, you'd be reading it kind of from her perspective. Like the fact that she's like a bit more quiet and real compared to Kate, who's this very theatrical figure, really works for me. And like Kate Blanchett's, like, I mean, her career she very much kind of does a lot of period roles. She does a lot of fantasy roles, not like over the top sort of Nick Cage characters, but definitely very stagey characters. And her whole appearance is always very, you know, studied. She's not someone who's like, oh, I'm going to do like a grimy played down role. She's not going to go for like a sort of Nicole Kidman old age makeup kind of situation. <laughs> she is very much someone who has done many, many crinoline roles um, and sort of wicked witches and so on. And in this, it's like she has so many scenes where she is, very quietly sort of delivering a beautifully formed smile that makes her look like a perfume ad from 1952 and sort of shots where you know she's framed in a very particular way in the middle of the screen and sort of it all feels very staged and also her like her laugh and her the way she speaks is all very studied and performative and like even her costume and her hair is like so kind of high impact and high effort. So it really fits in with like Kate Blanchett's general general image as like a person. Yeah, I mean she's a very I've never seen her in a play, but she is a very accomplished theater actress. She's done a lot of theater in Melbourne and then also has done various things in London and New York. And 
I do sometimes think that you can tell when a person is a is a major theater actor and also doing movies. The bad version of that would be if someone can't translate that onto yeah. screen. When right? someone is like people who've started off doing fun stage performances or West End, and it's like, oh, you're acting for the cheap seats, like really broad performances, but not broad in a sort of sitcom way. Whereas with Kate Blanchett, she sometimes does stuff like it almost feels like she's sort of pausing for a reaction. Like she will do a very studied pose and like fold her hands and have like a smirk at the camera. And it'll be like, okay, this is a different situation from what other people are doing in contemporary films. And I'm enjoying it. Well, also I think the biggest thing that actors get from going to drama school or for doing a lot of theater is vocal control. Cause yeah. that's a lot of what you do in theater school. And I'm not saying that if you actors don't go to theater school, they can't also achieve this, but that is something... That... I mean, it's why America keeps exporting people from Britain. <laughs> yes. And she just so completely has that, along with control of her body, too, of course. But she just... Everything about her, including her voice, is so precise in a way that really works for this character because she is always performing. She's always wearing these beautiful clothes and is really presents herself in a particular way. But she has had this marriage to this rich guy and clearly has had to go to like lots of events over the course of this period of time with him playing the wife, right? Which by the time and the she movie... And she is like the quintessential sort of glamorous... Like, I mean, she's not even a housewife because she's too rich, right? She's yeah. not like doing... The one piece of like housework she does is there at Christmas and she kind of delicately hangs some things up on a tree. You know, they have maids. But she's kind of the the 1950s film version of a glamorous housewife and like she looks so perfect and has this very sort of perfectly coiled hair and so on so it's you do really know that she's very self-consciously performative in a way that Therese isn't and they really they lean into that with sort of the costumes and stuff she has this very memorable sort of silly tam shanter hat that she wears which is just so kind of goofy even though she's not really a goofy person and like her clothes are just you know they're not fashionable they, they don't have go the whole hog and have her wear clothes that don't fit. But like she just generally is less concerned about the way she looks. Well, she wears sort of schoolgirlish outfits yeah. without actually looking like a schoolgirl. Yeah. Like and looks a lot like of checks, which but... are historically accurate. Like people in the 50s wore a lot of tartan and check, but you don't see that in contemporary period dramas because we think of tartan and check is so uncool that we're just like ugh but she's actually very accurate <laughs> well all of the costumes in this yes. are just it's Sandy Powell who is a queen obviously the greatest costume designer or one one of the greatest costume designers currently living she's worked with Kate Blanchett on a bunch of movies she did two with her that year she was doing like Cinderella and this but the difference being Carol was shot in something like like it was shot in some unfeasibly short length of time on a relatively tiny budget in Cincinnati and they were like okay Sandy Powell come into Cincinnati for a week and design all these amazing costumes and go off and do your rich person job somewhere else <laughs> yeah I mean she did she does most of Todd Haynes' movies if not all of them I think she very memorably won an Oscar for uh I think she actually won the Oscar I don't think it was just a nomination for Velvet Goldmine which of course is now she won she won for Shakespeare in Love that, oh, that yes, year and won the BAFTA for Velvet right, Goldmine thank you but was nominated for both of them yes which is you know <laughs> she's sure. got a lot of Oscars that lady <laughs> <laughs> but like Velvet Goldmine has some of the best costumes in a movie ever and is very different from this. But I just find the costumes so 
outrageously perfect for the period because you have a character like Carol who looks extremely fashionable and glamorous, but most of the characters, like I love the sort of nineteen fifty, like early nineteen fifties, all of the nineteen fifties. <laughs> I love the new look. <laughs> yeah, I think that we are primed to find that aesthetic glamorous and like there's a reason that Bad Men was such an insane phenomenon at the time that it came out. I mean, Mad Men is a great show, obviously, but I remember going into department stores and being like every single dress in this department store looks like a dress from Mad Men. I own some of them because it just like everyone wanted to look like that. Right. But the costumes in this are not all just like, Oh my God, everyone looks like they've bought something off the rack at like the designer store. Right. Well, The background characters are just wearing vintage. Yeah. Like, because, I mean, partly because they can't afford to make costumes for everyone and there's, like, you know, film studios have, like, access to all these libraries of old vintage costumes that they can get. But it definitely kind of adds to the idea of it being a film from the 50s rather than being a 1950s pastiche, which is what most kind of contemporary period movies are, you know? Yes. And they do a great job with the hair and they just manage to cast people who look like they're from the past, like across the board. The person, Oh my God, her husband. Kyle, so Kyle Chandler <laughs> plays her husband and he- With a hilarious name. Harge. Harge. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's Harge. Oh he my looks God. like a Harge. He's a large rectangle. <laughs> Kyle at his unhunkiest. <laughs> I fucking love him. I could watch him do literally anything. I mean, he is also incredibly versatile because he obviously got famous from Friday Night Lights playing- a- I mean, I just saw him in fucking Godzilla. <laughs> And playing, as you would imagine, the dad. Yes. And he was also the brother at Manchester by the Sea, where he doesn't appear in a huge amount of screen time, but is very memorable in that, yeah. playing just like a normal dude. And he completely comes across, believably, in the sort of Friday Night Lights, Manchester by the Sea type role. But also then you put him in this, the 1950s gear and like slick his hair back and you're just like, oh, yes, you yeah, look He's got the Clooney right. vibe. Yeah. But also all of the just extras and whoever, and like Sarah Paulson plays Carol's best friend, and she just looks totally right as well. And of course, all of this also has to do with the costumes and hair, but some people just genuinely have faces that like look like they're from a particular time based on our ideas of, you know, what people looked like whenever. Rooney Mara has the sort of most modern face, but not in a way that I found distracting. And that kind of works for her character. But I, I just found it like unbelievably successful uh, as a casting accomplishment. They just did such a good job. And so the combination of the costumes, the casting, the production design obviously is also fantastic. And then the cinematography tying it all together. You really just feel like you are watching something from I past. can't believe we didn't mention that it's shot in 16 millimeter. Yes, that was a big oversight. <laughs> And it, yeah, it has this sort of grainy quality, obviously, because it was yes. shot in 60 millimeter. But that adds a lot to the whole vibe of the movie, too, which is Everything's really just fun. very soft, and the colors are soft, and the palette they use is just wonderful. Like, the, the kind of introductory scene with Carol, not kind of the first scene, but when she first meets Therese, she kind of looks like this sort of beautiful like blushing kind of rosy color because she's wearing 
this sort of unusual color of fur. Like it's not like a black fur. It's sort of like a tawny leonine fur, which is very, <laughs> very flattering towards Kate Blanchett's general coloring. And then the sort of coral colored outfit underneath and sort of coral lipstick. And that's kind of a color that was really big in the 50s and really suits her. It's like an interesting and very thoughtful kind of range of colors they use in this movie. Well, and it's a lot of sort of dark reds and greens and sort of browns and it's a christmas movie so that it's very works. Yes, it's very soft there's very little blue anywhere i think i think therese has a blue dress but um it's it's all kind of darkish colors and sort of on the warmer end of the spectrum with with green thrown in there it does feel a bit funny to be talking about this movie in the middle of the summer because it is yes. such a christmas movie <laughs> i was Obviously Everyone can come back it. and recommend this podcast episode to your friends at Christmas. Yes, we will be reposting it at the appropriate date. But it's a really fun sort of Christmas New Year's movie. Like it evokes all that stuff in a really visceral way without obviously being like a Christmas film, you know, and gets the aesthetic of that stuff from that period also completely right. Like if you've seen photos of, of any of that stuff, it's, it's very distinctive. And you're like, oh, yeah. Um I'm sort of alluding to this earlier. I just think there are some actors you just don't really get or respond to. Obviously, this is also correlated with talent. Like, I don't think there are probably that many people who are like, I just don't get Meryl Streep. Like, you know, but um, I just don't get Rooney Mara. I don't get it. I, I've never found her massively compelling in anything. I find her as like an individual person, very entertaining and likable in real life because she's so just like, I don't give a fuck about any of this the fact that she and Joaquin Phoenix are dating is incredibly I mean, amusing it's literally to me. like if two Wednesday Adamses were dating perfect it is perfect <laughs> mazel tov to them I wish them only the best but I just find her kind of impenetrable and in this movie like more so even than normal because she's playing a deliberately sort of impenetrable character and um as the film went on it started to aggravate me more and more. I mean, aggravate sort of is too strong a word. I was still enjoying the film a lot and I think it is really great. But as the sort of more dramatic scenes go on, like there are a few scenes where she's very upset and is like, you know, crying or whatever. So that's obviously displaying an emotion. But especially near the end, like there are scenes where I was just looking at her face and I was like, your face is doing nothing. Like, come on. And she's internal, Morgan. She's internal. Yes. I have seen plenty of actors perform <laughs> internal characters. And I just was getting so nothing from her. And I remember when this movie came out, like the main criticism from people who didn't respond to it as intensely as its extremely intense fans was basically like, what is Rooney Mara doing? And I think it's kind of interesting that you can have this subset of people who basically reacted that way and be like, "What? what is this? Like, I don't. I'm getting nothing from this. And then have people who are like, oh my God, the romance, like I'm weeping. And there's just no, it's just alchemy. There's no, I, you know, I got nothing. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I don't have any particularly strong feeling about Rooney Mara in other films either way. You know, I think that the girl with the dragon tattoo remake was unnecessary. She was neither good nor bad in it. <laughs> um, but like, I've not seen enough of her filmography to really have like a strong opinion but um I guess it is alchemy and it's also possibly sort of the the twilight effect of like do you 
do you feel like you can kind of sink into the character of someone who's just like not <laughs> who's like the the quiet one of the couple <laughs> it, it's also like i never i think her best performance is ironically in the social network a movie i do not think is very good but i think she's very good in it for her one scene i mean the acting is not the problem in the social network as we have discussed we have an episode on that one yep <laughs> But I never watching her feel like she feels wooden or like the when she says the line of dialogue, I'm like, oh, wow, that was so awkward. Or like, you don't feel like a human. Like there are some actors, some very successful actors where you just watch them and you're like, oh, God, like this is you. You can't do this. And with her, I never feel like, oh, you're just so terrible at your job. Like she, it's like she she talks like a person, you know, but there's something of. And it sort of took me a while to realize this because there is something about her like as an individual that I find appealing. But I just never really find what she's doing that emotionally compelling, even though she seems perfectly plausible as a, as a person in her roles. And I think... I mean, something I really love about her character in this is that she's very restrained without being repressed. Because usually if there's a character who's quite like not inexpressive but definitely sort of restrained and quiet it's usually to do with a sort of tension that's about them forcing themselves to be quiet whereas in this she is naturally quiet and she is naturally an observer and there's so many scenes especially like in the very first scene um there's so many scenes where you can kind of just feel the like beams of energy as she and carol are looking at each other you know she's very good at looking at stuff and i it really worked for me what can i say well i think one of the <laughs> great things about the screenplay is that you don't get a sense of like tortured self-loathing from her at all it's just that she hasn't really experienced this before and is not quite sure about what she's feeling like there's a scene with her boyfriend where she's sort of asking him like if he's fallen in love with a boy before if he or if he knows like people who have who have done that and he's like what like i don't know and so it's clear that the whole deal with her character is that she very instinctively knows that like she wants to be with you know near carol but hasn't quite figured it out in her head yet but it's not like she's you know sitting in the dark in her apartment like tormenting herself over how you, which you is know. really kind of my preference when it when you're telling stories about the closet i prefer to watch and read stories where it's more about kind of the the conflict of the circumstances being the problem rather than it's someone having to really struggle through denial not because I think that's bad, but because I just find it too upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like, I would prefer this type of story, even though it is like very upsetting to see kind of the way that society is getting in the way of this romance. It does sort of overcome that. And it's like you said, it's not about her sort of tying herself up in knots about thinking that her desires are wrong. Yes. And I appreciated that a lot because that's not something you often see in a... I mean, this is I, this is obviously not a main... Maybe because most films are made by straight people. Yeah. So. <laughs> and this is not... I mean, this is not like a mainstream film, but it was a, it was a big no. deal when it came out. Like it was definitely a major production in the sense that it, I mean, they made it for like $5, but it got a lot of buzz around it Oscar time and like, it. yeah, Kate Blanchett is a huge A-list movie star, etc. But I think the problem for me with the romance was that because I didn't find Rooney Mara particularly interesting and so much of the relationship depends upon you just like getting her deal from her presence because she doesn't have a huge amount of dialogue it's not like she never talks but their whole situation is really dependent on their just like vibe and you understanding 
that they just had this incredibly intense connection. The character is quite a quiet person who isn't like going on like long soliloquies about what she's feeling all the time. And if you like me did not find her performance particularly engaging, then that really hurts the sort of grand romance in terms of like you finding that a good driver for the story, right? Like I find the stuff in this movie that is by far the most compelling, the stuff to do with Carol and her daughter. So what winds up happening in this film is that Carol and Harge are already kind of separated at the beginning. He knows exactly what's going on. She's kind of tired of this whole situation. Yeah, because she's she's had other female lovers and like her friend played by Sarah Paulson is a lesbian. So like she at least has some kind of connection to some kind of lesbian community, which obviously Therese does not. And Harge wants her to come back and it's not working. It's not going to happen. And so he files for sole custody of their daughter, Rindy. Just some great names in this. Rindy and Harge. So good. The 1950s white people. Very good. (laughs) Incredible. And um, he literally winds up like having an investigator follow Carol and Therese to sort of catch them in the act, uh, etc. And so Carol is incredibly sort of upset by the whole situation. And there, you know, she can't spend Christmas with Rindy, which is why she and Therese go on this trip in the first place. And then it winds up with this sort of custody situation. And that is also something like, I don't think I've ever seen in a film talking this explicitly about that kind of problem in this period. And it's because it draws directly from Patricia Hyde-Smith's experience, right? Because the original book was very closely taken from um, either one or two girlfriends that she had in real life, one of whom did lose custody of a child as a result of having a lesbian affair. Yeah. And you can tell that Carol is a really good mother. Like she adores her daughter and there's obviously no reason why this should be happening except that this is the mores of the time and she winds up saying like yes you should just have custody of her but i want visits because she just can't deal with this anymore and that is also not something that you see in stories for this period very often like the expected thing would be that you would just suffer forever because you must be with your child and obviously like being a parent is extremely important and she cares a lot about that and also that kid's gonna be raised by like a fucking nanny because it's like it's not like he's gonna raise her so right but the whole sort of question is like is it worth destroying your life to raise this kid you know all the time and clearly at a certain point she's like i just can't do this right but the whole thing is really really upsetting and affecting and i found it just quite gutting and um both of them meaning kate blanchett and kyle chandler are just so good and i think the writing of his character is really really sharp too because he is an asshole like the movie is not painting him as a sympathetic character but it also doesn't portray him as just like a 100 percent just monstrous nightmare yeah again it's not like certain stories like this where you are just like, Oh, but everyone's the victim. Like he's definitely a dick, but you also do kind of get the sense of like, 
this is not an ideal situation for this man, right? Like, it's just not great. And he clearly does not have the tools to be able to express himself correctly. And so is sort of muddling along and then doing these stupid sort of cruel things. And Kyle Chandler is such a good actor that he obviously like imbues this character with a sense of like real humanity as opposed to just being a sort of cardboard cutout villain. And all of that stuff I just found incredibly powerful. And I think part of the reason why I maybe didn't find the Rooney Mara stuff as compelling is that I didn't love that performance, but also that character just does not get anything as interesting in terms of like a subplot as the stuff with the daughter. Yeah. Cause she doesn't, she doesn't have any ties, you know, she has this social circle, but like they intentionally portray it as her having all these sort of acquaintances and she has this boyfriend who's her only really close tie, but it's not a huge wrench that they break up. Whereas Carol is the thing that it's like the big conflict in her life is that she is tied down. Like even though she wants to be tied to her daughter, like she can't just, you know, run away and go on a road trip, you know? And Sarah Paulson is in this movie very much, but the few scenes that she does have are so good. Like she just, again- Cause she's Sarah Paulson. Oh, I love her. And <laughs> love she her. just feels like such a distinct- person and the scenes she has with carol are really really great the sort of background is that they've known each other since they were little kids and then had this affair for a relatively brief period of time and then now are sort of i mean it, i think friends. that's like the one part of the film that really emphasizes the age difference between her and therese because like obviously you're like yeah like therese is in her 20s and carol's probably in her 40s but obviously Kate Blanchett is famously this very ageless person. So like we know that like she's apparently 50 or whatever, but like she's not really, she's Galadriel. Right. So, <laughs> but um whereas like when you're having this conversation between her and her friend, you know, they're having this sort of very knowing conversation where for the first time it's like characters actually talking about the fact that they're both gay. And also the fact that maybe this affair is a terrible idea and she's being sort of self-deprecating about it and they're kind of laughing about the fact that she's got this younger lover, which is not kind of something that she's really talking about with Therese because when she's with Therese, it's just this huge like kind of swooning love story. Um, and it's also very kind of like delicate and all of everything. So it's such a good choice to have this friend character in there. Yeah. And conversely, like I think the little bit characters who show up for a scene or two in the Therese scenes also are very well written, but they just don't like have the nice same... young men. I, I like all of them. Cause it's like, she just has these sort of professional relationships with young men. And it's like the two things that I really kind of appreciated about this film being relatively subtle. It's like you said, Harj is not like this absolute nightmare beast. And they don't have this whole situation where it's like, isn't it terrible for Therese to be a young woman trying to break through as a photographer? Cause I feel like the choice that always happens in more mainstream Hollywood movies and especially like gay movies that are made by straight people that have a homophobia aspect is that you will have like the homophobia will be like this huge like melodramatic thing where there'll be some like psychotic evil relative or something which like obviously does happen in real life right but I feel like that is just a very kind of melodramatic choice that often feels like someone just wants to revel in pain and the same thing goes for historical movies where a woman is like doing anything you know yes <laughs> and the fact is that there were women working as newspaper photographers and sort of magazine photographers in the 1950s and having a career and clearly succeeding like there are always women doing jobs at every point in history and not all of them are experiencing this as this huge kind of struggle that's like a stepping stone towards progress you know and in this 
homophobia is a problem, but it's more of a sort of a wider societal issue. And it's not like constantly kind of bringing physical danger into their lives. You know, it's a different kind of story. Yes. I mean, the sort of old adage when you're taking writing classes or whatever is that like the kinds of conflict are like man versus man, man versus self and man versus like nature or society. And this is clearly, a you know, I mean, woman in this case versus society problem. Like Carol sort of breaks up with Therese at a certain point because of the custody situation. Like they can't be together anymore because she has to be pretending like she's being cured. But um, if the problem is not that like they're having big fights in their relationship or whatever. Like the problem is that this external structure and force is preventing them from just having a normal life and it's yes, pre- preventing them from having their shared hobby of reclining gently on an attractive piece of 20th century furniture <laughs> and gazing at each other in silence yes <laughs> that would be their home life very very poised <laughs> i mean that's what the future holds for them so you know may they enjoy their many glamorous years of having nice Reclining. furniture yes <laughs> um so this film was released quite famously by the Weinstein Company. And uh, the advertising for this movie was... It has one of the best trailers. Oh. Like, obviously there are normal trailers for this film, but it was one of those movies where several trailers were trying to disguise the content of the film. So a few of them are definitely de-emphasizing how gay the film is, but there's one that uses the one scene where there's a gun in the movie to try and imply that this is in some way a thriller. And it's just like, it's such a classic Weinstein move. It's like, just mismarket it, missell it, don't understand what the appeal is. Just terrible. <laughs> and like the little, the little still on Netflix is also just like Kate Blanchett dancing with Kyle Chandler. <laughs> It's like, okay. Oh, well, they have different stills. So I guess Netflix's algorithm has decided that you want to be looking at... Oh, well, there you go. I mean, the description description says what it is. But I was just sort of like, "Mm, okay. But yeah, that ad was just... I mean... It was mocked virulently on the internet. Just across the board. This was very much a film Twitter movie. Like this. And then Phantom Thread, my other big fave, which coincidentally is also a film about people wearing pretty dresses in the 1950s (laughs) and having a torturous affair but very much the sort of precursor to all of the memes that we had about phantom thread where it's a film which is a very kind of it's like an independent drama about people having very sincere feelings to like an orchestral swooping score beautiful costumes and all the memes are people like fucking shit posting (laughs) which is the Carol fandom, which like came up around this movie, is very entertaining. And I remember there being a bunch of articles published about it at the time. I think someone made a short film, which is like a satirical comedy film about a bunch of people who are in a support group for Carol addicts, <laughs> which aired at some film festival, like won like a comedy award, and it's all these people who are just obsessed with Carol. But um, yeah, it did end up having a cult following, and it's the kind of cult following you only usually see for sort of sci-fi fantasy movies, but people just really love Carol. However, at the time, I think part of that fandom grew up as a sort of rebellion against the fact that this movie did not win Oscars. I I don't really think it was like, quote unquote, shut out. Like, I would have liked for it to get some Oscars, but I mean, it has a famous person in the title role, but it's not necessarily a film that's automatically a shoe in for Oscars. Yes. 
And, oh my god, there's literally a section on the Wikipedia page called Academy <laughs> Awards Omissions, which I think is extreme in my personal oh, opinion. It was nominated for six Academy Awards. Like, that is a lot of Academy Awards. That's not being shut out. I think that only counts as being shut out if it's like... Yeah, I mean, there were instances where a film is very clearly an Oscar film and, like, due to some kind of weird fluke or prejudice, it doesn't win. And definitely, for a film with six nominations, which had a high-profile actress in the lead role, definitely, like, homophobia did play into the fact that it did not win anything, probably. But I feel that, like, this film has stood the test of three years of time. Because what else came out that year? Who knows? What's a film? I don't know. Mad Max came out that year, which won most of the technical Oscars. Mad Max and Carol have survived the test of time, and I'm sure there's a bunch of garbage things that won the Oscars this deserved, and we've forgotten them, so... I mean, the the big Oscar nonsense with this film was that Rini Mara was campaigned for supporting actress and nominated in that category, as opposed to both of them being campaigned for lead actress, because they refused to do that anymore. So they were both nominated but for actress and supporting actress, which, like, don't even get me started. Yeah, it was nominated for Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Cinematography, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score, and Best Costume Design, which is a very <laughs> impressive role. But people got very upset that it didn't get nominated for Best Picture and Best Director, which are the two hardest things to get nominated for. And you know what? It's fine. It's fine. Todd Haynes is not exactly someone who has been showered upon with Oscars because he's a pretty, you know, cult person. The Oscars don't matter. It's all good. He's still going. Right. Oh my god. Okay, this year was the year when Alicia Vikander won the Best Supporting Actress for The Danish Girl. Yes. I have not seen The Danish Girl, but I... That is, first of all, a very forgettable Oscar win. Um, That year the Best Actress was Brie Larson, so that's like one we remember. But... Utmost respect for Alicia Vikander, that's a joke. (laughs) Yes. Well, this is the sort of, this is a great example of how the Oscars work, right? I mean, I obviously love the Oscars, as all listeners know. And also, as I've just described, like, I don't like the Marie Mara performance, so I, I mean, I think this is a bad list. This was Alicia Vikander for The Danish Girl 1, Jennifer Jason Leigh for The Hateful Eight, which I did not see, Marie Mara for Carol, Rachel McAdams for Spotlight, unbelievably boring performance. Sorry, Rachel McAdams. (laughs) I mean, I also love Rachel McAdams genuinely, and I think also she's a very good and unrecognized comedy actress. But in Spotlight, the best I can say is that she was present in the film. She was in the film as what I would describe as the female character. Yes. And Kate Winslet for Steve Jobs. She's good in that movie, but that is like not something I would give an award to. So that is not exactly a, you know... Banner year for Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars. (laughs) Alicia Vikander had had the year before... This was the year after she had the year where she had, like, five movies come out and everyone was like, oh my god, like, who is this person? She's so amazing. She's also playing a lead in The Danish Girl, basically, which I I have not seen either. And she's extremely charming and was going around and talking to everyone and they all loved her and were just, like, have this Oscar for Ex Machina the year after that Ex Machina came out, which often happens. Whereas Rooney Mara, I assume, gave three interviews and was like, I don't enjoy this. So I want to go home and chain smoke. Right. <laughs> so, like, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Whatever. The, we still have the best meme 
of all time on the internet, which is Harold, they're lesbians, which people tweet at least once a day. So, you know, who really won? Yeah, here? it is it is probably better advertising than the Weinsteins ever achieved because now everyone, as soon as they see the world word Harold, they're like, Oh, I probably ought to watch Carol at some point. <laughs> everyone likes that movie, and eventually they will. Yes. So, you know, it's all gravy. And then uh very shortly thereafter, Harvey Weinstein went down and we don't have to deal with him anymore. So it's fine. Oh my god, I can't believe I forgot to put this in our notes for this episode. But this movie did also inspire a conspiracy theory that continues to this day. Yes. Which is the people who believe in real life that Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett are in a relationship. Anyone who is familiar with this type of celebrity relationship uh, conspiracy theory will know the kind of thing we're talking about. Obviously, the most famous one of recent years is Larry Stylinson. The many, many people who think or thought that Harry Styles and Louis Tomlinson from One Direction were in a relationship. But yes, people think that Kate Blanchett, despite having been married to the same man for 100 years, is having an affair with Rooney Mara, even though Rooney Mara has also partnered up with Mr. Joaquin Phoenix, as we have mentioned. Um, I I do agree that Kate Blanchett is fantastically plausible and believable in this and in Ocean's 8. Uh, just having a certain vibe, she definitely achieves that in a very, it's hard to describe way, but she definitely manages the vibe. I know nothing about her personal life. However, she has been married to the same man for 100 years and I'm going to go ahead and assume that they're in love. Uh, and also, she and Rooney Mara were co-workers for, I would say, six months. Yeah. They don't have an ongoing relationship. They're not pals. <laughs> However, um, you know, that's the thing that people believe. They have a lot of charts they do on Instagram. Um, they still they still are very much on that train three years later. As I say often, the internet just has everything. Everything exists on the internet. You can find literally anything you want or don't want. It's out there. Just, just, I mean, Todd Haynes could truly never have predicted <laughs> when he made this, that that would be one of the But legacies. also, like, of all his films, right, he has made many films. And this is the most culty after Velvet Goldmine. Yes. Like, when Velvet, Gold, Velvet Goldmine definitely has become this huge cult phenomenon, which he wasn't even really expecting, even though this is, like, a film about fandom and it's about David Bowie, essentially. And you should listen to our Velvet Goldmine episode because it is one of, our, one of our best. We are experts in that film. But, um... Then, among his other films, most of which are extremely well-reviewed, rather than, like, the Bob Dylan movie, which is this really interesting and memorable film where they have multiple actors, including Kate Blanchett, playing Bob. In this film, it is just a straightforward romantic drama, and it achieved, like, the cult following, right? It's not just, like, people like this film. It has the people who, like, make merchandise and, like, give it to him at, like, screenings and stuff. And all the memes and the parties, the themes, the people who were like, oh, I'm gonna make a Carol-themed meal when the when it comes out on Netflix, you know, because there's certain things they eat in the film, like the good old creamed spinach meal, because they're very 50s with their food. Yeah, it's great. Like, there's... Morgan's just making a face, and I love the food in this movie because it's, like, not nice. No. I love movie food, and I especially like it when someone's like, ah, yes, a romantic dinner for two? Please give me a dry martini and some creamed fucking spinach. <laughs> I mean, 
No one could really have predicted that Phantom Thread would become what it has become either, but that is more explicable yes. than Carol. That has that has like laugh lines, right? Because there's a lot of moments in Phantom Thread which are very obviously gifable, like obviously not intentional. He's not making films for that purpose, but um, and like funny lines. There's a lot of one-liners in that movie. This is not a one-liner movie. This is a kind of a quiet, sedate, slow-building, passionate romance. So. Well done to Carol fandom. Yes. I respect you. Yep. (laughs) And on that note, this has been our episode on Carol. Thank you so much again to Sarah. If you would like to watch this in the United States, it is available on Netflix now, as I mentioned. So very easily accessible. Uh, It's a great watch. So check that out. Also available in UK Netflix. Oh, excellent. Um, So next week we will be talking about Midsummer. The new Ari Aster film. Yay! Uh, Ari Aster did Hereditary last year. Many of you may be aware. And it has been rapturously reviewed by critics who have seen early screenings. So we are very excited. I've, I've obviously, as is my habit, not read any of the reviews. I'm glad it's getting positive reviews. But I did find out some very exciting information for me personally, which is the music by this in this film is by the Haxan Cloak. Do you know the Haxan Cloak? Nope. Um, it's actually a man rather than a band, but he does the scariest music. He has not scored a film before, but I really like this guy. He did um, an album maybe three years ago or something, which is just sort of like about the experience of like being a corpse, basically. There is no dialogue. There is no like <laughs> lyrics. It's sort of like sound effects. It's sort of like the sound effects you have in a haunted house. There's a drone. There's sort of sounds of water dripping and sort of things slapping against walls in the background. Literally, if you sit in a dark room and just listen to that music, it is like watching a horror movie. I love that album. I have it on my phone for if I like I'm walking anywhere late at night and want to scare myself like a moron. Um, it's very atmospheric. But apparently Ari Aster wrote the screenplay to Midsommar while listening to music by the Haxan Cloak and then called him up and was like, would you like to do the music for this new movie? And I'm like, yes, sign me the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I'm excited. Starring our, our girl Florence Pugh, an excellent young oh, actress. Love Florence. Love Florence. Yes. So we're excited about that. That will be next week. So go watch that this weekend so you can be prepared. Uh Thank you all for listening. If you would like to subscribe to our Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, you can also leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We would really appreciate it. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing at The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. We are on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.